everybody, you are listening to the Church Theology Podcast, a podcast on the church for the church. This is Kirk Miller, and we are continuing today in our series through Revelation. We're currently preaching through Revelation at Crossway, and so these episodes uh, are meant to kind of come alongside and supplement that sermon series, uh, maybe digging into some matters we were only able to touch on briefly in the sermon, or uh, this week I had several of you submit different questions, and so uh, taking time to answer some additional questions you guys have that may be lingering in your mind after the sermon. So uh, on Sunday, I preached through Revelation 2, 18 through 29, and so we'll be talking about that today. Uh, this is a passage that comes in the midst of the seven messages to the seven churches that forms uh, the introduction to the book. Each of these messages to the seven churches is kind of like their own little unique introduction for that church to the uh, remaining contents that we're about to see in the book of Revelation. And so this is the message specifically to the church in Thyatira. Um, It's a short enough passage. We'll take time to read it here and then dive into the questions. All right, Revelation 2, 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead." And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, and so in this passage, really what what forms the message of the passage is Uh, This contrast we see, as we talked about in the sermon, this contrast between the works uh, of, of, of those who follow Jezebel on the one hand, and then the works of Christ as he puts it on the other hand. And, and to each, depending on what works um, you hold to, um, which works characterize you, um, you will be given according to your works. And so we get this repetition of works. We get this repetition of Christ giving things, uh, repetition of this phrase, like I'm going to th- cast you into the, uh, a sickbed in the tribulation versus I'm not going to cast on you any other burden. So we see this, re- this repetition throughout the passage, stressing this contrast between two sets of works one might hold to and then the two outcomes that accompany 
or result from those works. Now, I want to begin by um, just dealing with some of some of the interpretive questions that you guys uh, messaged me with and, and kind of said, hey, I'm, I'm still wondering about some of this stuff. Um, one of those questions was, what, what exactly are we holding fast to? So you'll notice in that contrast of, of the different works, so you have the works of Jezebel versus the works of Christ. So in 25, when he's talking about uh, when he's talking to those in Thyatira who are faithful, he says, only hold fast what you have until I come. And so I guess the question you might put it uh, is, is this. Well, what, what is the, quote, what they have? Um, what is that? And this is one of the interest, interesting things about this passage is there, and, and with these letters to the seven churches in general, is there's sometimes there's phrases or things where it's just, it feels a little bit vague, like, what exactly is he talking about? And it, I assume that the churches would have known more specifically what he's talking about at times, um, just given that they know their own situation better than we do, obviously. Um, here, um, it, it's it sort of feels like one of those possibly vague statements. Hold what you have. Um, hold fast to what you have. Well, what is the what you have? Why don't you tell us what it is? Um, I think the best way to understand this is probably not reading into it too much. Um, on the one hand, someone, I suppose, could say that it is the, the, um, the works that are spelled out in verse 19, their love, their faith, their service, their patient endurance. Um, it could be that. I think probably the most simple thing without making it overly complicated is to just see it in light of the contrast with the false teaching. So, um, in verse 24, he says, to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, and literally in the Greek it is that they don't have this teaching. You're not, you're not um, characterized by this teaching. It's not something that you're embracing. And so when he says, only hold fast what you have until you come in verse 25, I think the best way to take that is the what you have is, the, is not the false teaching. It's, it's hold fast to true teaching, in other words. Hold, hold fast to what you've actually received from the apostolic tradition, the true gospel, the true biblical teaching of Christ. Um, and so that's sort of the contrast that we are getting painted with here. And likewise, I would understand the works. This whole discussion of, uh, he talks about, unless they repent of her works in, at the end of verse 22, and then in contrast in verse 26 when he says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, that is Christ's works, the question is like, well, what exactly are those works? Again, we could go to verse 19 and maybe it's, you know, their love, their faith, their service and all that stuff. Again, I think probably the simplest thing is maybe not to read into it too much, where he's just simply contrasting uh, here, the, the her works, the works of Jezebel, in other words, would be to go after the false teaching. That's what it is to be characterized by her works. Someone who's going after her false teaching, you're following what she's saying, you're committing sexual immorality and offering food to idols, etc. In contrast then is Christ's works, which is to not do those things, which is to remain faithful to Christ, um, to not go after the false teaching. So that's how I would understand that. And that really sets out the contrast for the passage. Whose works do you hold to? Are you falling, falling into the false teaching, or are you remaining faithful to the apostolic teaching, what 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 Christ uh, has laid out for us, and as we now have it in the scriptures? The next set of questions I want to address is uh, some of you submitted questions specifically about the false teaching. Um, so, for example, 
the false teaching here is described with this symbolism of Jezebel. And and one of the questions was sort of, well, how do we know what exactly is symbolism? Um, what exactly, if something is symbolism, how do we know what parts of it are symbolic and what parts of it translate into, you know, this was actually specifically what was going on in the church of Thyatira. And this is a live question in this passage because you'll notice he says, uh, things like in verse 20, I have this against you, tolerate that woman, Jezebel. So was this an actual woman um, that's being described here as Jezebel? Or is he just using the that woman, Jezebel, to refer to uh, that the whole that whole phrase is symbolic, in other words. He actually might have a group of people in mind here, not just one particular woman in mind. So the Jezebel being one person, the, the symbol of Jezebel, of course, is one person. Jezebel is one person. But is that symbolism being applied to one person, like one person in the Thyatiran context? Or is he just taking the symbol of uh, this one person, Jezebel, from the Old Testament and applying it to a group group of people? Or does it have to even be a woman? Could it be possibly a man in the church or things like that? Um, there are other questions about you know, and these are live questions. These latter ones are more live questions I've seen debated in the literature. Like when he talks about how the servants are seduced to practice sexual morality, is that literal sexual immorality or is that possibly, as the book often does, the book of Revelation often often uses sexual uh, immorality and unfaithfulness as symbolic for sort of spiritual unfaithfulness, we might say, of kind of going along with the Old Testament picture of like if you think of Hosea is probably the most common place where we're familiar with this idea, but um, unfaithfulness to God going after idols is cast in this imagery of an unfaithful wife, that God's people are like God's unfaithful wife going after um, other gods and being unfaithful in that sense and committing adultery. So the relationship between God and his people is portrayed as a marriage relationship and God's people are an unfaithful wife. And this fits, of course, in the New Testament where we see Christ and the church are portrayed as in a marriage relationship as well, the church as the bride of Christ. And this fits with Revelation where you have uh, you have the harlot and you versus the bride of Christ um, at the end of the book. Okay, so some of the questions then is, well, is this actual, you know, food sacrifice to idols? Is this actual sexual, sexual immorality? Um, Later, he says adultery, things like that. I'll just tell you how I tried to navigate those questions. First of all, I do think it makes most sense to see this as an actual woman in the church. So clearly, Jezebel is symbolic. Um, Jezebel is someone, a significant figure from the Old Testament. So similar to how in to the church of Pergamum, he brought up the example of Balaam. Um, He's doing a similar thing here. He's drawing on a story from the Old Testament. Um, from First and Second Kings of Jezebel, this horrendously wicked figure who seduced her husband, King Ahab, to lead Israel into idolatry. Um, and so I think it's likely that it's also a specific woman in the church that he's applying this label to because he uses language, um, he says that woman Jezebel. So it seems like the, that woman seems like he's particularly identifying something. As well as he goes on to say, he call, who calls herself so he's using the singular feminine pronoun there, who calls herself. He, it seems like at that point he's going on in a description of uh, of an actual person in the church, especially when he says who calls herself a prophetess because the actual 
Um, Jezebel from the Old Testament would not have been a prophetess, would not have claimed to be a prophetess. So here we're not, it doesn't seem like we're dealing in symbolism anymore. It seems like he's actually describing how this figure in the Thyatiran church described herself as a prophetess, and she's actually teaching and seducing my servants. Um, I take the, the practicing sexual morality and the food offering idols to be actual descriptions of what they're likely doing. Um, because food sacrificing to idols, just that is something that actually would have been happening in their context. Um, and so I take the accompanying practicing sexual morality as if, if the latter, if the food offered to idols is an actual description of what would be going on in their context, I think it's most natural to take the other practice right next to it as probably a literal thing that's happening um, in terms of the fact that at these pagan feasts, a lot of that sort of sexual immorality would have been occurring and been, been quite likely. I do take the adultery reference, though, in 22 to be symbolic, just because it says those who commit adultery with her. I don't think what's happening here is that people are actually sleeping with the Jezebel person. I think at that point, he shifts to spiritual adultery. Now he's throwing another symbolic label on the on the sinful activity they were engaged in. That Functionally speaking, as we saw in the Old Testament, to go after idols is to commit spiritual adultery. So anyways, just wanting to kind of clarify that because I know some of you had been asking um, about just a little bit of the symbolism there and how we navigate that. Uh, another description of the false teaching is the deep things of Satan. And some of you asked a little bit more on that. What I what I said in the sermon is um, I what I think is, well, let me give you, there's sort of two primary views on this. On the one hand, there are folks who say um, that this phrase, the deep things of Satan, is maybe actually something the Jezebel figure here uh, in the Church of Thyatira is actually saying herself. Like, like literally she was saying, you, you, we should learn the deep things of Satan. Not like she was some satanic witch or something like that, but as if she was – the idea here is that as the Thyatiran church is – pressured by culture to participate in these trade guilds with their patron deities and their idolatrous festivals and such, that the theory goes that maybe this Jezebel figure in Thyatira was saying, you know what, what we do with our bodies is is what ultimately matters is the spiritual. And so what we do with our bodies, if we you know participate in these sexual immoral acts, is not ultimately of concern for our you know, our relationship with God or something like that, because it's ultimately about the spiritual. I mean, it really doesn't matter what we do with our physical bodies. Um, or potentially, you know, hey, we don't actually, maybe she said this, we don't actually believe that those idols are actual gods. We're not actually worshiping them. Um, so, of course, we can go through the motions. We don't mean it. Um, and so some have said that she's saying really to to really become spiritual you know, maybe we actually have to be acquainted with the deep things of Satan. We actually need to get to know these things intimately ourselves and be able to, you know, kind of go right through the the valley of, of these temptations and come out stronger because we went through the deep things of Satan. And so some have hypothesized that maybe that's what she, uh, that's what this whole deep things of Satan phrase is about, that, that Jesus is actually then taking a phrase that the Jezebel figure would have been using, um, and and the interpretation is that that's actually her own phrase. Um, so on the one hand, I mean, there there regardless of whether one takes that whole position, there's some truth to that. That's quite interesting in the sense that she likely was 
you know, saying it's not a big deal to be doing these things. It's not a big deal to be going to the pagan, to the, doing these pagan festivals with all this activity, which I think has a lot of application today where we can be tempted to justify um, activities like, just like she might say, well, we know they're not really gods. We can, we can go through the motions and offer things to these idols because we know they're not really gods. We can be tempted to do similar things today where it's like, well, we know better. We know I'm not really celebrating this, this sort of sin um, or this, this aspect of our culture that is, that, that we would disagree with, but I can go through the motions because I actually know better. Um, and Jesus is confronting that here. He is confronting that justification here. I, I don't know if I am persuaded of that overall interpretation though. I tend to think that, that Jesus might be giving it more of an ironic twist here. I mean, either of these interpretations is plausible, but the way I leaned and explained it in the sermon was that to me, I think the other, the other alternative is that Jezebel was offering to teach them deep things, period. Like maybe she was saying, I'm going to teach you the real deep truths. And just like in the previous passage, um, in a previous passage where Jesus says, you know, really that synagogue uh, where they've cast you out and they say that you're not true Jewish people, you're not truly God's people, Jesus says, well, actually, that's a synagogue of Satan. Now, of course, the, the non-believing Jewish people who made up that synagogue would not have called themselves a synagogue of Satan. They would have viewed themselves as a, tr- as a true synagogue, a sing- synagogue to the actual God of the universe. And yet Jesus says, no, they're actually a synagogue of Satan. Um, they don't, by rejecting Christ, by rejecting, therefore, by rejecting Christ, they therefore reject the true God. They, they, they are of their father, the devil, as Jesus says in John 8, um, believing lies as the, as Satan is the father of lies. And so they are the children of the father of lies by believing such lies themselves. And I think that's more likely what's happening here where he's saying Jezebel is offering you deep things, but really they're deep things of Satan. Um, they're not truly deep things in the sense that these are not deep things you want to be learning. These are the deep things of Satan. And so I think that's likely what's going on here. All right. So th- we've talked a bit then about the false teaching um, now. Um, and as you remember, the passage is is built on this contrast between the retribution for false teaching and then the reward for faithfulness. Now let's take a look more at that reward for faithfulness. Because some of you are asking me if I could kind of dive into a little bit more of the details. I was I was running short on time in my sermon, and so I just really had to move quickly over this. So I'm I'm glad that interests some of you and you'd like to hear more, because I I if I had more time, I would have gone into more detail. And so let's do that now. Um, so at the end of this passage, um, let me just read it again in 26, to the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him, and then here's the key part we'll be discussing, I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. All right, so let's let's dive into that a little bit more um, here. So as I mentioned briefly, and I'm going to turn there because I have the time to do so now, um, this, this section of the passage alludes to Psalm 2. Now, Psalm 2 is an absolutely, just a major psalm in terms of how we understand the whole Bible. It is uh, a psalm that really sets the framework it picks up a lot of theological categories and things that are going on in the Old Testament as it relates to the promise of, of one from David's line and God's uh, covenant with David of a coming ruler. 
Um, and it really then gets picked up in the New Testament as seen in, as fulfilled in Christ. And it kind of provides a framework for understanding a lot of what's going on in the New Testament. You might say Psalm 2 is, you could summarize the book of Revelation along the lines of Psalm 2. So it's a really important psalm in our Bibles. Um, and the psalm begins this way. In verse, verse 1, it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed or Messiah here, the Messiah king, the anointed king, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And, and so this is, we have all the nations kind of coming together. You might think of the Armageddon scenes in Revelation. All the nations are raging against God. They're plotting against God They're, and against his king. Let us, let us rebel against them. Let's burst their bonds over us. Let's, get, let's, get, let's, let's free ourselves from their tyrant, from God's tyranny or something like that. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He's, God just laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Is this a joke? You can't rebel against God. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, God, here, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God says, You can't rage against me. I have appointed my king. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so this is the king from David's line saying, God has this is the decree. This is sort of the the enthronement ceremony, ceremony we might say, where, where God is laughing at the nations because he set his king in Zion, his holy hill. And this is the de decree of this enthronement ceremony. Today, God has begotten his son. So this is the Davidic king then receiving that, that declaration, you are my son. And we oftentimes think of this son of God language in, in terms of Christ being God. Um, but oftentimes, and that's true, that does that is a use that is prevalent in Scripture. But oftentimes, this idea of Son of God is also a, a a term or a label, a description for the kings of of Israel. As in as much as it's sort of like a like father, like son sort of idea. As God is the ruler, so the kings of Israel were sons of God in the sense that they resembled God's. They were to resemble God's rule over God's people. And so here, the Davidic king is then receiving this. This uh, enthronement of today I have begotten you. I've made you my king son, my son king. And it says in verse 8, then ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So here's this, the dominion then of this king is seen to be universal at this point, which is really expansive according to if you're thinking from the Old Testament perspective of, 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 the, of the kings of Israel reigning over that small plot of land. Well, here it's, there's an expectation of universal rule. And then in verse 9, um, this is where we get the specific language that is picked up in Revelation 2, our passage. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And then he closes the psalm by telling the kings to be warned, to kiss the son, give him reverence, um, lest he be angry with you. But blessed, on the other hand, are all those who take refuge in the son, which is exactly what we do, of course, in the gospel by trusting in King Jesus. Um, and so kind of coming back to Revelation then, this makes sense of why the passage opens up probably, uh, 
or I should say, this probably makes sense of why the passage opens up with this language of, of uh, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, right? The words of the Son of God. Um, this is the only par- point in the book of Revelation, I believe, where that phrase Son of God is used. This isn't like a common phrase in Revelation. And so most likely he's using that phrase Son of God because it picks up on that psalm that he's gonna, going to allude to later in the passage that refers to the Son of God, King of Israel um, idea. And then as he says in, in the end of the, our passage in Revelation, he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces as I myself have received authority. And so it's alluding to that psalm. But what's super interesting here is we just got done looking at Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a, is a psalm about the kings of Israel, ultimately anticipating the, 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 the greatest king, the Messiah, Jesus. And the New Testament will tell us over and over that Psalm 2 is, in fact, filled out, fulfilled in Jesus. He is the one who will rule over the world, and, and God has appointed as, as the final and eternal king. And yet here in this passage, he's saying that the one who conquers and who keeps Christ's works until the end, to him, Christ will give him authority over the nations. He will do the thing that Psalm 2 says, ruling the nations with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. And so Jesus in Revelation 2 is saying that the reality of Psalm 2, which he fills out in himself, is now going to become a, is now a promise even to believers that he's extending that rule even to believers. And so I think this can be illuminated by looking at Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7. So in Daniel 7, which this is not alluded to in our passage in Revelation, I just think this is a helpful passage to go to. The book of Revelation does allude to Daniel and does see Daniel as programmatic um, for the book of Revelation. So I think it's especially appropriate. But let me just draw your attention to Daniel 7, 13 and following. So this is the vision of the Son of Man, a phrase that Jesus' favorite phrase for himself was Son of Man. And here we get the where that phrase like really takes on most of its meaning. Um, so in Daniel seven thirteen, it says this: I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him, and to him this son of man figure was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom, and all that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, so here we see the Son of Man figure receiving the kingdom from the Ancient of Days, God the Father. Okay, so this, I mean, really similar to Psalm 2 in this respect. Another major passage in the Old Testament that picks up on this kingship Uh, pattern that we see fulfilled in Christ. But in verse 15, then we get the interpretation. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts, uh, before this is the vision of the 
great beast, which also gets picked up in Revelation with the beast language. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth. But notice this, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So I want what I want you to notice in this passage is that right before this, the first section I read, the Son of Man is given the kingdom. And yet, when Daniel gets the interpretation of that vision of these of the beasts uh, ultimately being destroyed and and superseded by the reign of the Son of Man, when he gets the interpretation of that passage, he's told that it will be the saints who receive the kingdom and possess it forever and ever. So, in other words. What Revelation is doing by taking Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm specifically fulfilled in Christ as the ultimate king, it's then expanding that to believers, to the, the citizens of the king, kingdom, that even that even itself fits the pattern that we have in the Old Testament. Now, and, and, and again, I think this is really, really encouraging um, for us because there's a lot of talk, as I mentioned in my sermon, about sort of being on the right side of history right now. And so to be to hold to sort of Christian teachings is we're told is to be on the wrong side of history. But what we're getting in this passage is, is a promise that where history is ultimately going, the ultimate right side of history when everything is finally played out, is that we will reign with Christ. We will reign with him. And, and, and to, to think about the image of Psalm 2, those first three verses about the nations raging and the people's plotting, that's what we experience in this life is, is the world around us raging against God, not wanting to, 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 wanting to buck off of his teaching and his instruction and his law and his ethic and his, his, his Messiah, not wanting to submit to Christ, not wanting to submit to Scripture. And it can feel like we are, it can, it can feel like everything, the tide is against us. Um, but this, but that Psalm two reminds us then in the very next word, God laughs. God's got it under control. He is appoint. He has appointed his king. His king will reign. And in Revelation two, we see that we ourselves will be caught up in that reality as well. We will be vindicated in the end. We will be rewarded by participating even in the reign of Christ. And so it's an incredible encouragement to the Thyatirans, especially who would have been seen as a insignificant city. And then the Thyatirans, on top of that, are an ostracized group who are experiencing persecution. They're experiencing marginalization. They're experiencing the pressure to capitulate to their culture. And Christ reassures them, you can, you can stay faithful to me. It may seem that you're being marginalized. It may, or you may be being marginalized now. You may, may feel like you're, you're out of sorts with the world. And you are at the present time. But at the end of the day, things will be made right and you will be vindicated you will be on the right side of where history is ultimately heading the other imagery that this um the end of this passage gives us is this idea of the morning star as well and so um was only able to briefly reflect this in the in the sermon but if you go to revelation 22 16 this is the other part of the book where that morning star language shows up it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. And then Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David. So here again, kingship language from David's line language. I'm the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. So Jesus actually identifies himself as the morning star. And in this passage, we're told that 
the, those who conquer will be given the morning star. Uh, so whatever that exactly means, it's associated with Jesus as the ruler. It's more of this kingship sort of uh, themes. And I think this makes sense as, as most likely an allusion to Numbers. I think in my sermon I said Numbers 23, but I meant Numbers 20, 24. Numbers 24, 17. And this is, this is a, a prophecy of Balaam. So we just had Balaam in the previous section. And so the fact that you know, these are so close to each other, I think, fits as well. But in Numbers 24, when Balaam is, you know, Balak wants him to curse Israel, Balaam actually blesses Israel. He can't not prophesy what God would have him prophesy. And so in Numbers 24, 17, as he's blessing Israel, he says, I see him, but not now. Behold, behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A star, the star language coming out of God's people, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. And so this idea of a star, uh, it was was messianic um, language. It was language that was used in this notable prophecy here of of a coming king out of Israel. And so I, I think that's most likely what Revelation is doing. It's saying Psalm 2 is going to be fulfilled in God's people and, and God's people also receive this morning star that they will participate in the reign of Christ. All right, I want to show you one other thing too about this promise. So you, you'll remember that the the promises Each of the seven messages to the seven churches closes with a promise, a call to conquer and a promise to those who conquer. And one thing you want to keep in mind is that each of these promises then is filled out, it's fulfilled and and come to realization at the end of the book in chapters, roughly chapters 20 to 22. Um, And so really that structure shows us, you know, the beginning and end of the book, we have promise made and then promise fulfilled. And the whole middle section of the book with all these visions of a cosmic battle is sort of how do the faithful go through the cosmic battle to ultimately receive the promise um, as they are faithful through that battle. So a promise to be faithful in the midst of the coming tribulation. We go through the visions of the tribulation and come out on the other side at the end of the book to those who have been faithful, they receive the promises. So in this case, in Revelation 2 to the, the church in Thyatira, they were pro- they are promised that they will reign with Christ. And I just want to direct you then to Revelation 20, which is this uh, kind of infamous passage. It's very debated. It's the passage that talks about the millennial kingdom as it's uh, referred to at times. But this this depiction of uh, of, of saints reigning with Christ for a thousand years, that this is actually where I see uh, the promise to the church in Thyatira fulfilled, that we see its promise, the promise made to the church in Thyatira, and then we come to chapter 20, and we see it fulfilled in in verse 4, for example, where it talks about those who did not worship the beast or receive its mark, those who were faithful to Christ, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And so I think this is this is what we see happening here in the book of Revelation. In chapter 20, uh, this promise of these of these folks who who were beheaded for the testimony of Christ, the, the faithful here, now reigning with Christ, I think this is the exact sort of thing we saw that we saw promised to the church in Thyatira. So moving to questions or matters of what you might call application, um, sort of takeaways as this passage comes to bear on us, um, I think one of the questions we might consider is how 
we would use this passage to counsel or disciple someone who is facing pressure to capitulate, a brother and sister in Christ who is being seduced, as, as the passage says, to, to capitulate, um, to, to wrong thinking or wrong activities, compromises with culture. Or even to maybe make the question a little bit more precise, not just how would I use this passage to counsel them, but how would this passage be used in my own life to make me into the sort of person who actually senses the responsibility to intervene in other believers' lives along these lines. And so like, one of the things I think this that's assumed in this passage, the idea of that we're tolerating the woman Jezebel, is not just that like everyone is kind of making their own individual decisions, like everyone in the church is kind of responsible for themselves, um, whether they are going to be faithful and you know follow Christ or what have you. But there's actually a sense in which if I tolerate other people's compromise, that's on me. Like they're responsible for their own actions, of course, but I'm responsible with what I do in response to their actions. And so part of this passage is is owning the fact that we are our brother's keeper. When we come together as a church, we covenant, we have a church covenant, we covenant together to say that we are here for each other, we are a community, we're going to watch out for each other. And and so one of the aspects of this passage is just thinking through, um, yeah, I bear a responsibility for other people in the church. Um, how can we be on guard for each other? Not just for ourselves, of course that's true, um, but how can we be on guard for each other where we see maybe temptations? We, we know each other well enough. We're involved in each other's lives that we can speak into each other's lives um, with some influence, uh, with some discernment to guard each other from these temptations. Another category I want to address um, is what I might call, I, I received a lot of questions, a lot of comments about this after the service from a host of different people as well as messages. And I would probably put it all under the umbrella of just how do we navigate those that we have these disagreements with in culture, these areas of friction. And so I gave examples in the sermon about kind of raising some contemporary situations where we might be tempted to compromise. We might run into friction otherwise with culture. And I think one of our knee-jerk reactions, just sort of the way that we as American evangelicals have been built over the last several decades, just our, like our social political climate, is that anytime we hear of like these trends in society where things are going in a, in a way that we, we would not see as favorable, we see as problematic, our knee-jerk reaction is to kind of get into kind of think in terms of culture war, like how do we win the culture? How do we, how do we stop these uh, trends? How do we move things in a better direction? Um, and I just want to be clear, like that's, that wasn't why I was raising those examples in my sermon. I don't think those are irrelevant questions. I think those can be good questions to obviously scripture, you know, wants our Christianity to come to bear, not just on our lives personally, but also in as much as we are able, we would love to see the gospel then have impact on society as well. We want to see justice. We want to see righteousness in society for the sake of human flourishing. And so in Jeremiah, we get the what, what God says to his people in exile to seek the welfare of their city. And so we should seek the welfare of our city, of our state, of our country, of the world. Um, so those aren't irrelevant questions. Um, in as much as society embraces bad ideas and bad ethics and bad worldviews, etc., it's going to be bad for society. And we want to see, obviously, we don't want to see the detriment of our neighbors. 
politics and and how we engage society and how society is shaped, all those things are are matters of loving our neighbor. Um, and so we want to be able to love our neighbor. Those are relevant things to think about. I do want to be clear though that that was not exactly the um, that's not the point of this passage. That's not necessarily what this passage is addressing. This passage is sort of addressing, you know, it's not so much addressing how do we change the world around us, but more how do we make sure the world around us doesn't change us? Um, how do we make sure that we are not influenced and capitulate to the world around us? Sort of given the fact that the world is in a bad place, that it's 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 going after things we shouldn't be going after. So not much. So not so much raising the question, how do we change that circumstance, but how do we navigate that circumstance? And while while we're on that, it's worth noting too that the Book of Revelation, the way it speaks about the mission of the church in the midst of such a hostile world, where I think again, I think we're in our context where we've had evangelicals are ha- have had a decent amount of political influence, we're apt to kind of immediately go to culture war mentality where we want to say, how do we win culture? How do we transform culture? And again, I don't, as long as those things are done in a proper way, I don't think those are irrelevant questions to be had. Um, but what's interesting is it's good to keep in mind that the, that revelation places the mission of the church primarily in its call to suffer. Um, it's, it conquers, not as we would typically, we typically think of conquering as sort of, and we might be, we might, that, that's one of the areas where we might misinterpret the book of Revelation. We see that word conquer and we think of it in terms of like going out and like on the offense, overcoming things in society and, you know, gaining dominion in society and, and things like that. Whereas really, as with Revelation, oftentimes the images are meant to kind of be flipped on their head like they mean they they mean seemingly opposite things the the Jesus is the lion who is actually the lamb um you have the reputation for being alive but you're actually dead he says to the church in Sardis and so the, the imagery is unexpected and it's flipped and so likewise with conquering the way we conquer isn't by having power and influence and being able to you know, protect ourselves physically or economically or socially, or even by, you know, kind of dominating culture or having that sort of influence over culture. But ultimately the mission of the church is, is a call to conquer by, by just being faithful, even to the point of death, by being faithful in suffering. And actually that is one of the ways that we serve, um, as lampstands, as lights in this world, um, and we conquer is by being faithful even when we don't have that influence. And so I say that to say at the heart of the mission of the church, according to Revelation, as well as many other places in the New Testament, is the call of and the question of how do we remain faithful? How do we remain in integ- integrity and a faithful witness to the gospel? Not ultimately, like, yes, if we can influence culture for the better, great. But not ultimate, that's not the ultimate to the extent that we will compromise our witness in the process and compromise our faithfulness in the process. And so really the ultimate question that the book would have for us here, um, as we navigate those we disagree with, in terms of some of those examples I gave, in terms of points where we find friction, is is not sort of how do we find means to preserve ourselves, self-preservation, or how do we, you know, are we able to overcome the culture and get it, get trends changed or what have you. Again, not that those are necessarily irrelevant things, but what's ultimately and what is of first importance and what we sh- we can't compromise with those other questions is how do we stay faithful? How do we stay faithful?
So then practically speaking, um, a good many of you raise the question, the questions like, okay, so I have people I know, um, who, you know, maybe they're a part of a, of a particular community that I'm going to run into conflict with them. We're going to, we're going to be, we're going to have rifts in our relationship if I remain faithful to Christ. And I don't want, you know, the way our culture currently is like to say, I disagree with them is, is it comes across as if I, they'll take it as if I don't love them. And I want to make sure I'm conveying things properly where I can, you know, kind of, as we say, love the sinner, but hate the sin or hate the sin, but don't hate the sinner kind of idea. Like, how do we, how do we do that? Well, how do we, as we are called to be faithful and not compromise with culture, we're going to be met with this idea that we are an intolerant group or a hateful group or bigoted. Like, how do we, that's sort of the question, right? Because we want to come, we want to be loving. We, we want to come across loving, but not just come across. We actually want to be loving. We want to be a people who really does care for our neighbor. And that, that can be one of the problems of the culture war mentality is that whenever there's a war, there's casualties. We, we, don't, we are not against people. We're not against anybody. It's not an us versus them sort of idea. And so that aspect of the culture war, we, we need to put aside. We want to, we want to love our neighbors. Um, we want to love even our enemies to the extent that we don't, we really, if you live out the ethic to love your enemy, you don't treat anyone as an enemy. You don't have enemies. We love everybody. And so how do we, how do we exhibit that posture? In other words, I think was the question folks were asking me, how do we exhibit that posture without, you know, wanting to get into the trenches of just proving that we're right or, um, coming across as bigoted or coming across as hostile. Now, on the one hand, I think some of that is just inevitable. Um, what I mean by that is if we hold to a biblical ethic, there will be people who inevitably see us as bigoted. They will inevitably see us as hateful. We cannot control how people respond to us. And if we gauge our, our activities in response to their assessment of us, that is a disaster that will inevitably lead to unfaithfulness. So we have to be resolved, first of all, to just accept that we're not going to be swayed by people's opinion of us. Granted, if we can if we can do our very best to persuade people that we are not hostile, we we don't hate people, um, then let's be let's do it. You know, let's not give people more reason by by of course, let's not give people more reason to to think that we are hostile. Let's not do things that are actually hostile. Um, but at the end of the day, there's no magic bullet for of just evade. There's no magic bullet that's going to allow us to evade those perceptions is what I'm saying. We have to just come to grips with the fact that those things will happen. Um, and that's not anything new. That, that, that's been with us for the entire history of the church. I think First Peter, though, it can be really helpful um, along these lines in terms of just navigating a hostile culture. I, I want to walk us through some passages in First Peter and just kind of let them answer um, for me. And so first Peter, I referenced this in my sermon, first Peter two eleven through 12 says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Okay. So there's the call. We, we should be sojourners and exiles. We should, we should be rather different in this world. Um, this world that we were, we don't fit here, right? Verse 12, what does this look like where we're 
In verse 11, we're abstaining from our flesh. Verse 12, we keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, notice that. There's an assumption that they're going to speak against us as evildoers. But we keep our conduct among the Gentiles as honorable as we possibly can so that as they see our good deeds, they will glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, like we're going to face that ill will, people speaking against us, thinking things against us. But how can we keep our conduct as honorable as possible? How can our conduct be as winsome as possible before them so that those sort of accusations just, they don't really have much of a place to stick. They can say, well, I think they could say, well, you, this belief over here, that, that would seem to make you bigoted or something like that. But then they look at the rest of their, our lives and it doesn't fit. Well, how can you be bigoted when you are some of the most sacrificial, some of the most loving people I know? where we, we make it so incongruent for them to actually think of us that way, of us bigoted, because the rest of our lives screams the opposite. How can we give them just an immense sense of cognitive dissonance to think ill will of us when the rest of our lives is undeniably loving? So he continues in 1 Peter 2, 18 through 20. He's talking about servants here, slaves, being subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good masters and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. In other words, there's no, there's no glory in, in suffering for doing something stupid. Like, let's not, let's not suffer because we're idiots. Let's not suffer because we're just needlessly offending people. But when we suffer for doing what's right... That is a blessed thing in the sight of God. First Peter 3, 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. So not retaliating, but when we are spoken of evil, how can we respond then by, by you know, not warring against people, sort of taking away a little bit of that cultural war flavor of it being a war, but how do we actually bless those and, and speak well of those uh, who speak in hostility towards us. And in 1 Peter three twelve through 17, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? In other words, if you're doing what's right, normally speaking, people aren't going to harm you. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. That is, we face uh, suffering or, or, or different things like this, that, it, that people will be able to see that there's a hope within us that it will make them curious. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So I think in some coming to grips with the fact that if we hold to biblical teaching on things, we will face hostility um, increasingly so in our culture and just recognizing like we have to be okay with that. Um, we can't let our opinions and our, our lifestyles um, and such, our convictions be determined by other people's opinions of us. And yet at the same time, let us give them no more, let us give them as minimal reason to, to speak ill of us as possible. Let us, let us do all we can to show ourselves to be people who are not bigoted who people who are not hateful but people who are the most loving and the most sacrificial all right so that concludes our uh, podcast time today 
Um, I look forward to getting together with you all this Sunday as we head into Revelation 3, 1 through 6. And as always, if you have questions on the book of Revelation or any of these passages, go ahead and uh, submit them to Dan or myself. We'd love to answer these things for you. Thank you.